Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello history friend. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to ask you a question. Are you interested in Anglo-American relations? Does the idea of what-if questions of great power balances of mid-19th century confrontation between Britain and America over very trivial issues interest you? Well then, you should check out our series Diplomacy Britain versus America, which is available to all $5 patrons and above. Over seven hours of content in that series are available now to you, in addition to over 60 hours of other content, ranging from an exploration of Polish history in the 18th century, which is pretty depressing but also fascinating, called Poland is Not Yet Lost, and an examination of the Suez Crisis of 1956, which was perhaps the worst thing Britain did until the Brexit vote in 2016. Unrelated, but the point is, when diplomacy fails, as Patreon has something for everyone. So if you want some extra content and you want to support this show and keep the lights on, I'd really appreciate you clicking on the link in the description below or going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks. Now enjoy the latest episode of the 30 Years War. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Joshua McGann. Joshua helped to broker the truce between the Spanish and Dutch in June 1647, a vital first step towards the final peace between the two countries the following year. Good diplomacy, Joshua. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 77 of the 30 Years War. So in the last episode we concluded our examination of 1645. It was an eventful year, containing some significant initial moves on the diplomatic board, but it was also unquestionably a year when the war palpably turned against the Habsburgs. Torstensen's victory at Yankow in March, followed by Turenne's at Alarheim in August, convinced the Emperor and the Bavarians that the war in Germany was unlikely to produce a favourable outcome, and so for now, they would invest their hopes in the negotiations at Westphalia. As 1646 dawned, few could have imagined that a final peace treaty was still two years away. Surely there was nothing left in the tank for the conflict to continue, and yet 1646 was the last true year of the Thirty Years' War, 
because the following year, in 1647, would be taken up by the conclusion of truces, and the year after that would become synonymous with peace. But Europe still had a way to go before it could reach that peace, and in this episode we continue our analysis of this process as I skip beyond 1646 today to tie up some Dutch loose ends. After so many years in the background, the complement to the larger wars between Spain and France, or the Emperor and Sweden, or just continuing on their own wars before the Thirty Years' War even started, it seemed the Dutch had a mind of their own where peace was concerned. It is there that I take you then, to where a certain stalwart commander of men was on his deathbed. Frederick Henry, Prince of Orange, was one of the defining commanders and innovators of his age. He had assumed the office of Stadtholder of Holland from his brother Maurice in 1625, and at that time the fate of the Dutch Republic seemed shrouded in uncertainty and defeat. Thanks to the leadership of the Spanish commander Ambrogio Spignola, remember him, the army of Flanders had worked its way through the Dutch defences, capturing Breda before 1625 was out. C.V. Wedgwood provides an emotive account of Maurice's final moments, how his waning mental powers honed in on the threat posed by Spain, how he feared his younger brother, mostly unknown in the Republic, would not be equal to the task in front of him. Maurice mustered enough strength to watch Frederick Henry at least leave his life as a bachelor behind, and at 40 years old, marry one of the bohemian ladies-in-waiting. At the very least, a dying Maurice could take solace in the fact that the House of Orange would continue. Just as Maurice died in April 1625, Frederick Henry left his new bride behind to lead the assault on Spignola's outworks surrounding Breda, but in this case the challenge was too great. Another equally formidable challenge was to expect Frederick Henry to succeed his brother as Stadtholder for five of the seven Dutch provinces, and as supreme commander on land and at sea. Would this unknown orange entity distinguish himself as his brother had done in the field of military innovation and ingenuity, or was he merely riding to war on the name value of the House of Orange alone? Well, I'm sure we know the answer to this by now, but the Dutch Republic was very fortunate indeed that Frederick Henry was a skilled, creative, and learned commander of men. He had learned from and been devoted to his elder brother, but it's safe to say, in my view, he surpassed Maurice's exploits many times over. It would have been above Maurice's imagination to suppose that within 20 years, the Dutch position would be so transformed and Spain so weakened. Yet it was in these last two decades that Frederick Henry had turned the tables on Spain. Frequently, in fact, the Stadtholder had provided the sole source of good news for the anti-Habsburg camp, as his well-drilled militias and professional soldiers undermined countless Spanish settlements, securing the borders of the Republic in the process, and removing the Spanish soldier from Dutch land. In 1625, indeed, the news was gloomy not only for the Dutch, but for all those who had been determined to oppose the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor or the King of Spain. France was then controlled by a pro-Spanish regime, and Cardinal Richelieu had yet to gain his footing. The English were more interested in a Spanish marriage than a Spanish war, and this had only recently begun to change with the death of King James. 
1625 also, boy this has given me a lot of nostalgia, the Danish king was poised to enter what he believed was bound to be a glorious showcase of his power, but of course it ended in utter disaster. The Dutch were caught in the middle of these schemes, but as one Dutch observer saw it, Here there is nothing but gloom for the present and fear for the future. It's safe to say Frederick Henry was the third in a run of three critically important Princes of Orange during the years of the Dutch Revolt. Frederick Henry assumed the role which Maurice had passed to him, and Maurice had himself assumed the Stadtholderate after succeeding from his father. William the Silent, who lived from 1544 to 1584, was the father of these two famed Stadtholders, and he had raised the standard of revolt against Spain with some reluctance and much difficulty, but that act had had tremendous consequences. The inheritance that William the Silent left to Maurice was one of leadership, which all subsequent Princes of Orange would do their utmost to match, but it was also an inheritance of revolution. The Dutch revolted against the Spanish and launched a revolution in finance, trade, entrepreneurship, exploration, exploitation, military invention, naval tactics, and even in something as mundane as taxation. The conflict had the effect of supercharging the economy of an already lucrative corner of Europe, with the result that the seven provinces, which eventually constituted the bulk of the revolt, were forced to redefine their relationship with war finance to sustain their seemingly endless struggle. The struggle paid off, though, because it was thanks to their revolution that Spain suffered from a wound which never truly healed, and sucked in resources and commitments far above and beyond what Madrid could have imagined it would take when news of those rebellious northerners was first learned of in the late 1560s. The Dutch revolt shed its wholly Netherlandish character, and by the turn of the century the Dutch had been moved to establish foreign trading companies and seize markets owned by the Spanish and Portuguese. As they bungled the war against their former colony, the Spanish were faced with additional enemies. Wars with the English and French were fought alongside that of the Dutch, and frequently spilled into the relevant zones of colonial influence. It was due to these considerations that that renowned historian Geoffrey Parker saw fit to label the Eighty Years' War as the First World War of its age. In pursuit of their religious freedoms, the Dutch managed to inspire settlements in the New World, and the religious toleration its officials displayed while governing their colonies, such as Brazil, may have gone some way towards influencing the religious pluralism of the United States. Of course, the Dutch were not wholly free from bouts of religious extremism either, and the difficult experiences of division and suspicion during the years of the Twelve Years' Truce, from 1609 to 1621 in particular, read like a warning to republics with a religiously diverse population. To fight her enemies, the Dutch had become not merely adventurous seafarers, but also first-rate traders, with an entrepot trade network based in Amsterdam, snaking all over the world. The war had compelled the Dutch to improvise, to explore and invest, with the result that by the end of their war with Spain, it was safe to proclaim that, Through our thrifty and shrewd management, we have sailed all nations of the seas, drawn almost all trade from other lands hither, and served the whole of Europe with our ships. It was a grand claim to make, but few would have been able to dispute it. For eight decades the war with Spain had been maintained, 
and even during that aforementioned truce which brought peace to Europe, the war was not paused in the New World or anywhere else where the Dutch might perceive an advantage. This conflict had carried on breathlessly from the middle of the 16th century to this scene in 1647, when this great scion of the House of Orange lay dying. Frederick Henry, much like the war he had rescued, maintained and then pursued to victory, was nearing his end. In addition to all he had done for the Netherlands, the ailing Stadtholder had also made another critically important dynastic decision, which was to have an impact not only on his republic, but also on his European neighbours, with consequences that are still felt today in Ireland, Britain and the Americas. This is because in 1642, Frederick Henry's son, William, married Mary Stuart, the daughter of King Charles. By this act, the Stadtholder demonstrated that the House of Orange, a curiously Dutch institution which was not quite royal, had been raised to parity with the actually royal House of Stuart. Was Frederick Henry plotting to reimagine his house as the source of the country's kings? Did he plan to launch some kind of royal coup? Certainly he received no shortage of offers from Spain and occasionally from France, which promised support for whatever grand dynastic ambitions he might have. But Frederick Henry wouldn't be drawn on this. Instead, he placed his faith in the logic that his house would be raised up by the prestige of its connections, and his daughter Louisa was also wed to Frederick William, the Elector of Brandenburg, in the weeks before his death. Frederick Henry certainly felt threatened in his position, though. With the war with the Spanish coming to an end, would the Dutch Republic truly need a stadtholder? Surely when peace with Spain came, his influence and that of his family would decline, since there would be no war to heap additional glory on his name or those of his successors. Indeed, the Regent Party in the Netherlands was already counting on this outcome, and in Holland in particular, rising political stars such as Johan de Witt were reaching for greater control over the country's policy. The result of this tension was that when Frederick Henry died on the 14th of March 1647, it seemed fewer in a position to pause for a moment and consider his incredible legacy, a legacy which had virtually saved the Dutch people from Spanish rule and catapulted this small group of provinces to the forefront of the European concert of power. Instead, his death occasioned the first of many showdowns between this regent or merchant party and Frederick Henry's son, William. The regent party had been suspicious of the French alliance. They'd been eager for the war to end, and they'd wanted to increase trade relations with all powers, even the Spanish, as soon as possible. In June 1647, only a few months after Frederick Henry's death, a truce was signed with the Spanish. By that point, in any event, the war in the Netherlands had wound down with no activity of note since the late Stadtholder's capture of Hulst in 1645. It could not have been guaranteed at the time, but this truce was to last for another eight months until in January 1648, it became an official peace. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In other words, the war between the Dutch and Spanish was effectively at an end by the time the new stadtholder assumed his title from his late father. But so long as William II remained in place, there was little chance to radically reimagine the government of the Republic. Therefore, it was the occasion of William II's death from smallpox in 1650 that radically altered the history of the Republic. This provided the opportunity for the Regent Party to act and to undermine the influence of the proto-monarchical House of Orange. For more than 20 years after William II's death, the era of the so-called true freedoms was at hand, where the office of Stadtholder was left vacant in five of the seven provinces and the merchant regent class ruled the republic. It was a period of unrivaled prosperity and wealth, but it couldn't last forever. The concerns regarding the French alliance proved valid, as an empowered French king, Louis XIV, launched a surprise attack in league with England in 1672, setting in motion the Franco-Dutch War, otherwise known as the Rampyard or Year of Disaster, because things did not go particularly well. And if you'd like to know more about that Franco-Dutch War, scroll back down the feed to about six years ago, and you should be able to find our 24-part series on that conflict, one of my favourite series I've ever covered, just so you know. If you've listened to that series, you'll know that in 1672, a young Prince of Orange was rapidly coming of age the son of William II, William III. He had been born a week after his father had died, and he had ambitions and visions of his own. The challenges which faced his house and his countrymen were grave, but William III managed, by the end of the 17th century, to position himself firmly in opposition to the French, and, famously, to launch a bid for the British crown in 1688, which was to redefine these isles. William III was indeed a remarkable man, but he was granted such opportunities because of the exploits of his grandfather and granduncle, who fought for decades in the cause of Dutch independence. The Thirty Years' War seems to tidy up the story of the Eighty Years' War, because the latter seems to reach its climax and come to a conclusion within its parameters. Thanks to the interconnected nature of the war and the heavy involvement from Dutch and Spanish forces, 
it was impossible for the results of the conflict not to spill over into the conflict between Spain and France or Sweden and the Emperor. Indeed, the Dutch War is critical to our understanding of the Thirty Years' War because of this. Central though they had been to keeping the Thirty Years' War alive, by the mid-1640s the Dutch had notably moved to the periphery of the conflict. This was due to several factors, not least the utter distraction of their Spanish foe following the eruption of revolts in Portugal and Catalonia. With the arrival of French support for a war within Spanish borders, King Philip IV of Spain decided to prioritise the challenges facing his crown in Iberia, and since those in Iberia posed a direct security risk to Madrid, it was inevitable that the war with the Dutch slipped down his list of priorities. This in turn, of course, gave the Dutch new opportunities to defeat their foes in the Spanish Netherlands. Pressure was also piled by the French, who battered on the Spanish defences in Flanders to the west, while the Dutch operated in the east, and this combined assault could only produce one outcome. The defences of the South Netherlands along the border with France had traditionally been weaker owing to the decades of war between the Spanish and Dutch and the diverting of resources to that front. Then the Brussels government began to buckle in the face of these combined pressures, exacerbated by the chronic underinvestment from Madrid. Not even the efforts of the Emperor's brother, Leopold William, was enough to save the region from disaster. It seemed only a matter of time before the French and Dutch carved the area up between them, and it was arguably only Dutch fears of a French border that stopped this outcome. If the war was not guaranteed to bring substantial returns, and if the Republic was not in any present danger, one could ask what the purpose of the war with Spain was, or, at the very least, the officials in Holland could complain that they no longer wished to foot the bill for such an enormous army that was, by the mid-1640s, effectively sitting idle. It was therefore necessary to reach peace with the Spanish, but this goal itself contained two major problems. The first was that the Dutch were divided, ideologically, but also literally, as the Dutch delegation was split between these seven provinces. Each province had its own representative, which was sent to Munster, but these figures by no means always operated in tandem. This was because each representative hailed from a province that wanted to pursue its own interests, as though it was an independent state. For the most part, these interests came down to where that province stood on the question of war with Spain. For Holland, the war had gone on long enough, the House of Orange was becoming suspicious, the French were dangerous, and the war was shortly wasteful. The merchants, entrepreneurs, and growing middle-class burghers who had helped finance the war had grown tired of it, and they advocated peace as soon as possible. On the other side of the debate, the province of Zeeland, the second most important province in the Republic, was against making peace and was notably more pro-Orange. Zealand's mercantile interests were aided by the wartime blockade of the River Scheldt, which choked the Spanish city of Antwerp, a blockade which would of course end to the detriment of these Zealand merchants once the war also ended. Embodying these two standpoints were the residents in Munster, Adrian Pauv for Holland and Johan de Knight for Zealand. So long as these two officials disagreed about the nature of the peace treaty with Spain, or indeed the merits of making peace at all, the war with Spain would continue. Yet, as we saw, a truce was reached in June 1647, which means that at some point in the 18 months that the Dutch resided at Munster, 
common ground amongst themselves and with the Spanish was finally reached. The second major problem the Dutch negotiators faced was that of the French. It was within the French interest to ensure that the war between the Dutch and Spanish continued, just as it was to ensure that the war between Sweden and the Emperor continued. Many methods could be used to exhaust and demoralise one's rival, and it only made sense for the French to harass them as much as they could. The war with Spain had been a boon to French fortunes since its inception, with the exception of that rocky first few years, and French kings had intermittently supported the Dutch since the war began. By the mid-1640s, Cardinal Mazarin was understandably anxious that the Dutch would make peace with Spain first, thus undermining French leverage at the peace table and potentially French security as well. Mazarin wanted to keep the Dutch close until peace could be made with the Spanish, and his agent, Abel Servian, went to remarkable lengths to disrupt their negotiations, at one point even accusing Adrian Pauve of bribery to undermine his position and potentially get him recalled. Pauve angrily denied the accusations, which were taken very seriously in the Republic. However, Abel Servian might have been better served in his quest to undermine Dutch peacemaking by examining the Zealand delegate, Johan de Knight, who was on record of accepting Spanish money. It's not known whether Johan de Knight was a firm advocate for peace, notwithstanding this secret income, but considering the fact that he represented Zealand, the more pro-war of the Dutch provinces, this would be an odd fit. One imagines Zealand would send a delegate that fit their outlook on the war, rather than send a potential ally of Holland to the negotiations. The historian Peter Gale went as far to call Johan de Knight one of the most corrupt servants of the Prince of Orange. So, the jury seems mostly decided on that front. But Cardinal Mazarin was more than capable of devising a scheme himself. In spring 1646, a damning secret plan was leaked by the Prince of Orange in The Hague, which contained a startling revelation about the intentions of the Republic's ally. Mazarin, Frederick Henry said, had schemed to swap the thankless province of Catalonia with Spain in return for the possession of the Spanish Netherlands. This swap, said Mazarin, should not anger or even surprise the Dutch, because hadn't they made a deal in 1635 to divide the Spanish Netherlands between them? This might have been true, but the circumstances of that division were different to the swap which Mazarin here conceived. It would have placed the French at a stroke, empowered and in position of all the fortified places of Flanders directly opposite the Dutch. There would be no question of the French having to fight for these gains because they'd be handed over unspoiled, with profound implications for the region. Perhaps after more than a decade, this old offer was no longer as attractive to the Dutch as it once had been. Mazarin ought to have realised that swapping an exhausted Spanish regime for a reinvigorated French one would have been unpopular in The Hague, but instead of considering this, the wily cardinal determined to contact the ailing stadtholder in late February 1646 with these terms. This was a serious mistake by Mazarin. Frederick Henry was burdened with the offer and recognised its dynamite qualities from the beginning. He asked Mazarin to keep the offer secret, but seems to have accepted the scheme would leak out and cast him in an unfavourable light with the anti-Orangist party. So, just as the Dutch delegates were returning to The Hague to try and 
bolster their negotiating position, news of the scheme was allowed to filter into the Dutch states-general. It caused a sensation, an anti-French sensation. On the 28th of February, the official statement condemning the plot had been published by the Dutch government. And it went, That France, being enlarged by the Spanish Netherlands, shall be a formidable body next to this state, that all states at all times have considered it dangerous to have neighbours who are too powerful, that the nature of the French is difficult and restless, and can scarcely be suffered except at a distance. Yet this official condemnation was not as inflammatory as the unofficial response from Dutch citizens. The news of the efforts of France to undermine the security of their ally by appearing on their doorstep overnight came accompanied by scurrilous rumours, which claimed that France also wanted to inherit Philip IV's claims to overlordship over all the Netherlands, thereby inheriting a casus belli against the Dutch in one fell swoop. That latter rumour was actually untrue, but it still spread quickly. The Portuguese ambassador in The Hague even claimed that the Dutch, being at war with his state across the world, now hated France so much that they no longer had any hatred to spare for Portugal, and it's certainly possible that this compelled the Dutch to take their focus off Spain as well. In the circumstances, a lasting peace between the Dutch and Spanish suddenly seemed more possible than ever before. The Dutch delegates returned to Munster in May 1646, and shortly afterwards they had intensified their negotiations with Spain. Originally willing to propose the equivalent of a 20 years truce, the Spanish were suddenly offered a comprehensive peace treaty by the Dutch delegates containing 71 detailed articles, which I'll read now. Just kidding. <laughs> On the 18th of May 1646, the most substantial step forward in these negotiations were made as the Spanish signalled their willingness to accept 60 of the 71 articles. The Dutch now had firm ground upon which they could negotiate, and they were determined to do so without any interference from France. The Dutch may have broadly favoured peace, at least in terms of its delegation, but it was still necessary to smooth over any wrinkles in their united front. Thus, the delegates from Holland and Zealand led the charge, and would eventually reach a compromise in early 1647. The compromise saw Adrian Pauw promise to send a fleet and an army funded by Holland to recapture Brazil, if Johann de Knight promised publicly to agree to peace with Spain. It's through this largely forgotten arrangement more than any other that the Dutch-Spanish peace was facilitated. Certainly, it could not be said that the beleaguered Spanish had somehow pressured the Dutch to sign. Even the Portuguese, nominally at war with the Dutch, managed to weigh in on the debate, despite possessing no officially recognised deputation at Munster. The French and Portuguese were united in their quest to undermine a Dutch-Spanish peace, because any peace between the Dutch and Spanish would free King Philip IV to focus more intently on Spain's wars with Portugal and France. But if either King John of Portugal or Cardinal Mazarin feared that Spain would suddenly redirect resources against them in the aftermath of the truce, they were relieved to learn that King Philip faced yet another revolt in his lands, this time in Naples. After a year of revolt provoked by Spanish efforts to squeeze the Neapolitan tax base to the limit, 
The struggle ended when Philip's illegitimate son captured Naples in January 1648. So, the Spanish were not totally helpless. At least one problem area of their empire had been healed, but Philip was not particularly cheered on by the news. With war destined to continue with France and Portugal, and Catalonia still burning a hole in his pocket, he noted with dismay in summer 1648. It pierces my heart to see the vicious state at which the world has arrived. I recognise it as clearly as you do, and as I cannot remedy it so quickly as I should like, I am greatly troubled, although I do what I can. God grant that I may succeed in remedying it, and that I may begin by my own amendment, for there is no doubt that I need it more than anyone. At the very least, Philip could be encouraged that the war with the Dutch was effectively over, and relations in trade and diplomacy could, perhaps, be normalised. By now, the Dutch seemed more interested in taking the fight to the Portuguese, at least in the New World. Following on from the commitments which Holland made to Zealand in early 1647, by the second half of that year, it was time for this flotilla targeting Brazil to set sail. By August 1647, it would be fair to say that Holland and Zealand had turned their attentions away from negotiations at Westphalia, as a force of 41 ships and 6,000 men was assembled and prepared to set sail in October. Even though various complications delayed the expedition until December 1647, and even though this expedition itself produced no notable results and certainly didn't return Brazil to Dutch control, Zealand did keep up her end of the bargain. The States, or Assembly, in Zealand instructed her representative in Munster to make the truce official. And through this process, following a solemn ceremony on the 30th of January 1648, the 80 years war between the Dutch and Spanish was officially brought to an end. There was nothing the Portuguese or French could do but fulminate at the Dutch decision. Both powers were destined to remain locked in war with Spain for several more years. The Dutch, meanwhile, reorientated their financial and political stance to assume a more mutually beneficial relationship with Spain. Trade routes were opened up, border security with Flanders was relaxed, and money began to flow into the Dutch coffers like never before. Perhaps against all expectations, a so-called special relationship between the former enemies now began to blossom into the 17th century, with the result that the two powers became firm allies in the wars against France, which dominated the second half of the 17th century. One significant chapter of the Eighty Years' War, and therefore of the Thirty Years' War, was now closed, but other chapters which constituted this saga in peacemaking were far from finished yet. In the next episode, we're going to continue our analysis of those chapters, but now that we've tidied up the Dutch story somewhat, I'm going to take my leave. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, my dear history friends and patrons. I hope you're not too emotional to see the end of the 80 years war, and that you're looking forward to seeing where this conflict goes next. But until we return to this tangled era of diplomacy, I will say, my name is Zach, this has been episode 77 of the 30 years war. You're a great history friend, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.